0: Romans 5, 12 through 14 is our text for today. This is the 28th message in a study through the New Testament book of Romans. Uh, Romans was written by a missionary. In part, what Paul was doing here was raising money for his missionary journey to Spain. The heart of God is missions, and so therefore, I would encourage you yourself to consider as to whether or not God would be calling you to become a missionary. If he is not, there's one thing that you must do, and that is you must work as hard as you can to send other people to the mission field. Today's message is 42 handwritten pages, and the title of today's message is Adam, You Are. Adam, (laughs) You Are. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. As you do, remember that God loves you. Listen as I read Romans 5, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Father in heaven, I do pray today for us as we study something which is, for the most part, theological. Uh, Lord, that we would not be caught up in the precise theological details to the point where we forget what it means to practically be in Adam and all the sorrow that brings, and Lord, that we would forget all the joy that it is to be in Christ and all the blessings that that brings. And so, Lord, yes, please help us to understand, but Lord, help us more than that to be thankful, that we who are saved are no longer in Adam, but we are in Christ. Lord, may we enjoy that today. And Father, I do want to pray for anyone who is not in Christ at this time. Lord, that today would be the day that they would be transferred from one dominion to another through the power of your Spirit and the Gospel. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I have a four-point outline today. Uh, points number one, two, and three are all going to come from verse 12. Uh, point number one is, Adam, you are one man. Point number two, Adam, you are a sinner. Point number three, Adam, you are responsible. And then in between points three and four, we're going to have a commercial break in which we are going to look at verses 13 and 14 And then we will do point number four, which is, Adam, you are a type of Christ. And that will come from the very end of verse 14. Every year on December 31st, I sit down and I write a list of the most influential people in my life from the year that is about to end. I rank the top 10 in order, and then numbers 11 through 50, in no particular order, I add 40 additional names. Now, these people are not necessarily my allies, nor are they good people, nor are they my friends. Sometimes those who influence me the most are those who make my life the most miserable. Influence simply means those who changed my life the most. How things are different because of them. Well, in the history of humanity, the two most influential people who ever lived, by far, are Adam and Christ. No one comes even close. Why? Because the two most important entities in all the world are life and death. And from Adam, we get death. That is physical, spiritual, and eternal death. And from Jesus, we get life. Physical, spiritual, and eternal life. And so, if I was thinking in big picture ultimate reality theological terms my december 31st top 10 list would actually every year only have eight available variable spots Uh, the reason that that would be true is because jesus and adam every year would occupy the top two positions well today our concentration will be on adam And we're going to look at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. But in the big picture of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, it speaks of the influence that Adam has had upon humanity compared and contrasted with the influence that Christ has had on humanity. Uh, Our text today starts off with a formula. Uh, The formula is... Therefore, just as. Uh, The therefore tells us that there is some sort of conclusion that is being drawn from what we studied previously in the book of Romans. Well, what have we studied previously? Well, in chapters one through uh, three, We studied the fact that all have sinned, uh, that the Gentiles have sinned, that the Jews have sinned, that all have sinned. and Yet at the end of Romans 3, it tells us that there is forgiveness and there is salvation by faith alone in Christ alone chapter 4, there is an illustration of this in the life of Abraham. And then as we move into chapters 5 through 8, this is a new section of the book of Romans. It tells us what our life looks like after we are saved and before we die. And we have looked in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5 and seen many blessings which come our way through Christ Jesus. My guess is that the therefore at the beginning of chapter 5, verse 12, is that Paul, having just spent so much time explaining the benefits that we have through the one man, Jesus Christ, uh, benefits like justification and peace with God and reconciliation and hope of glory, so forth and so on. Now what he wants to do is to make sure that his audience knows that all of the sorrows that we endure also come from one man, and that one man is Adam. Uh, grammatically, there's something very interesting that goes on in chapter 5, verse 12, and that is that Paul will start off the formula of the just as, uh, but he never gets to the so also. It's sort of like Paul never finishes the analogy. He, he interrupts himself or he distracts himself and he never gets around to finishing the sentence. I love how the New International Version ends verse 12. It's sort of with Ed Moore punctuation. It's a dash, meaning we're not really sure where Paul is going with this. There isn't really any kind of formal punctuation here. He's just said some things that are very true. Didn't really finish his thought. Dash, let's move on. Well, today, we only have time to look at verses 12 through 14. Uh, and as I said in my prayer, this, for the most part, is theological, although there will be some sort of practical implications that you can draw from it. Sadly, as I analyze my own sermon today, I would say that there is too much of Adam and not enough of Christ, I think it is imbalanced in that direction, but hopefully as we complete our study of chapter 5, the Christ will come out, and not that Christ will be excluded from this message, but it will be weighty in the direction of Adam. I, I wish that there was more Christ in this, but I think it's important that we understand our condition, then we will fully more uh, appreciate more uh, the solution, which is Christ. so what I would like us to do is to look at the influence of Adam, and I want us to use our imaginations, and I want us to invite Adam into our service today, and I want us to talk to him about all that he has done to influence us, which brings us to point number one, Adam, you are one man, Adam, you are one man. The text says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. You know, in recent years, Adam has come under attack in that many claim that he was not a real historical figure, sort of like Santa Claus represents Christmas and Adam represents sin, but neither of them are actually real. Adam wasn't a real man. Well, that is a very dangerous way of looking at Adam. Uh, sadly today, we have to start off by affirming that the Adam of Genesis was an actual human being. He was indeed the first man. He was a unique creation of God and not the product of millions of years of evolution. Those who call themselves Christians have made uh, written Bible commentaries and they have written about Adam and they have said some things about him which are just false. Here's an example of some things that I came across. Uh, some people dismiss the historical Adam and that they say either he didn't exist or that he is just a metaphor or that he is just a literary figure or that he was just a Neolithic farmer or get this that he is our genealogical ancestor, but not our genetic ancestor. How does that even work? Or that he was Homo uh That he, a man by the name of William Lane Craig, basically said that he was of another species, uh, that he was a caveman, that he was Ali Oop. Uh, This uh, Homo Heidelbergensis uh, was uh, uh, discovered by a jawbone uh, that was found in 1907 near Heidelberg, Germany. Uh, From that, they derived that there was a completely different uh, species. And so if that's true, it's quite possible that Adam dated Wilma Flintstone before he married Eve. (laughs) Um, but if one believes the Bible to be true, and I do believe the Bible to be true, then it is impossible to explain Adam as the first man as being some sort of a prehistoric creature. Uh, why? Uh, because Jesus said that Adam was a unique creation of God. Mark chapter 6 verse 7, he says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. The doctrine of marriage is derived from Adam's relationship to Eve. Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. Adam is in the genealogical line of Christ. Luke chapter 3, verse 38. Paul said that Eve was made from Adam. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8. Adam and Eve form the model for the doctrine of Christ and his church. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 30 through 32. Adam and Eve form Paul's rationale as to why women cannot exercise authority or teach in the local church. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, particularly verses 13 and 14. The woman was created after the man. The woman was the first to fall. You see, the existence of every human being is traced back to Adam in Paul's gospel presentation on Mars Hill in Athens. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. And he, speaking of God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. And so if you eliminate Adam, or if you mythologize Adam, you have removed the foundation for humanity, for marriage, for sin, for death, and for the need of our Savior being a human being. First Corinthians chapter 15 verse 21, for as by a man came death, By a man has come the resurrection of the dead. In other words, if Adam is not an actual man, then Christ didn't have to become an actual human being. Adam, you are one man, one actual man, one essential man. And notice, your masculinity is not optional, Notice that Romans chapter 5 verse 12 does not mention Eve. It does not say, therefore, just as by one man and one woman sin entered the world, it is by one man. Now we know from Genesis chapter 3 and from 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 14 that she was deceived and that she was the first one who sinned. But even though she was the first one who sinned, she did not bring sin into the world. It is Adam that brought sin into the world. In other words, the one that caused sin, not sins plural, but the presence of sin, the reality of sin, singular sin, the power of sin, the effects of sin into the world, that was brought about by the one man, Adam. He was the man, he was the head, he was responsible, he was the one who was in authority. And so, hypothetically speaking, if Eve had sinned, but Adam did not, then sin would not have entered the world. That is, sin would not have spread to humanity. You see, Adam didn't invent sin. That was done by Lucifer. Adam did not commit the first sin. That was done by Eve. But as the man, the head, the representative, he introduced sin into the world. You are one man. Adam, you are one man. Here's point number two. Adam, you are a sinner. Adam, you are a sinner. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 again says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Adam was created sinless. Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse 29 says, see, this alone I found, that man, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Uh, Adam was perfect. He was in unbroken fellowship with God. He was holy and he was happy in Eden with Eve and in fellowship with God. And then in Genesis one twenty six, it says that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Skip down to Genesis chapter one, verse 31, and God makes an evaluation of this creation, and it says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it wasn't just good, but it was very good. God gave Adam one command, a command, one, count them, one. Genesis two sixteen, and the Lord God commanded the man. Now that doesn't mean that he didn't also command the woman, <clears throat> but as I said, the man as the authority receives the command. He is responsible. And what was that command? Again, Genesis 2, 16, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. I'm not going to withhold anything from you. I'm not going to make you miserable. But verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. That was the law. It was the one law. It was clear. It was explicit. And to break a law which you know exists is called a transgression. You see, it is possible to sin without being a transgressor. It is possible to sin ignorantly, but it is impossible to be a transgressor ignorantly. For by definition, you transgress only when you know the rule with absolute certainty and then willfully break it. God says of Israel now remember Israel, they are God's covenant people, they possessed the law, they knew explicitly what the rules were. They were spelled out in the law of Moses. What does God say of Israel? Hosea chapter six, verse seven. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Israel and Adam are the same in that both of them are transgressors. They clearly knew what the law was and they broke it. There was no ambiguity in God's prohibition of that tree Adam you are a sinner and what does it say that Adam did in Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 the last three English words in the ESV are and he ate and he ate and he ate Eve had already fallen Adam was with her, he watched her eat, he watched her sin. She said to him, "Would you like some?" and he ate. The fact that he sinned is clear. The punishment, however, is somewhat ambiguous because back in Genesis 2:17, when the law was being laid out, God says, "In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." Now, is the death here referring to physical death? I do not think it is referring to physical death because Adam lived an additional 930 years. Uh, he didn't stop physically breathing the day that he ate. Uh, physical death would, from this moment on, become an inevitability. But physical death was not what God had in mind when he spelled out the rule and the punishment. What God was referring to here was spiritual death, estrangement from God, Adam was alive physically, but he was dead spiritually. He was alive physically, but he was no longer in a right relationship with God. The soul that sins shall surely die ezekiel eighteen twenty you see the fellowship with God which he had abruptly ended when he ate, and what does he do? He immediately goes into hiding. When he goes into hiding, he is there because he is feeling the shame of his sin, and he is aware of his nakedness. And when he is confronted, what does he do? Well, he does what we have been doing from that day to this, and that is he shifts the blame to his wife. The first words that were ever spoken to a sinner were spoken by God. And in Genesis 3, 9, it says that the Lord God called out to the man and said, where are you where are you adam where are you god doesn't ask this question because he is unaware of adam's whereabouts god knows where adam is god knows all things adam where are you is asked for adam's benefit and this question reveals the condition of the rebel adam where are you I want you to answer that. Tell me honestly, Adam, where are you? Well, I'm not where I used to be. That's for sure. I'm naked and I'm afraid and I'm hiding and I'm fallen and I am estranged from the God that created me. When the Lord comes looking for you, He wants you to be aware of where you are. In other words, where do you stand with Him? And so I ask today, sinner, where are you? Where are you? Tell me about your heart. Tell me about your actions. Tell me about your thoughts. Tell me about your life. Tell me about your condition. Sinner, where are you? Do an evaluation of yourself. Notice it not only shows the condition of the rebel, but it shows, more importantly, the concern of the Redeemer. This question shows the concern of the Redeemer. One verse earlier in Genesis 3.8, it says, "...the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden." And notice in verse 9, the first word is, "...but." But, by contrast, "...but the Lord God called out to man." You see, if God's intention was merely to damn and to condemn Adam... All he had to do was leave him alone. Adam is hiding. He is afraid. He is naked. But the Lord goes looking for him. Adam, where are you? I did not come to you to condemn you, but I came to you in order to save you. John three seventeen. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We're hiding from God, and we have been hiding from God from that day till this. For there is none who seek after God, and men love darkness rather than light, and we did not think it profitable to retain him in our knowledge. We have been running as fast as we can from God, but thankfully, he can run faster than we can, and he catches up with us. Sinner, where are you? he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And what did he do for them? Well, it says in Genesis 3.21 that he made Adam and Eve garments of skins and clothed them. In order to do this, there needed to be a blood sacrifice, which tells me that the gospel is of first importance. In order for them to be covered, there had to be a death. And in order for our sins to be covered, there had to be a death, the death of God's Son. And he promised them that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent. Now, this would not be free of charge because the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman This is in chapter three, verse 15. It's known as the proto-evangelium, or in other words, the first gospel that has ever been preached. The seed of the woman, Jesus, did come as promised, and he did make a blood sacrifice for sinners, and he did this because he loves us. Are you able, in all of this mess, speaking about how we have fallen, to remember that God loves us? The gospel is of first importance he loves sinners, and Adam was a sinner. Point number two, Adam, you are a sinner, which brings us to point number three, and this is where it gets theological, and that is, Adam, you are responsible. Responsible for what? Again, look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Adam, you are responsible for sin and death. When Adam chose to transgress the commandment of God, he was not just making a decision for himself. He was our representative. And he made that decision for you and for me and for all of mankind. And as a result, we all inherit what is known as original sin. The theologians call this federal headship. That is, one person is appointed to act on behalf of a large group. We see this in the battle between David and Goliath. In 1 Samuel 17, when Israel and the Philistines were squared off in what would have been a very bloody battle, they agreed, listen, rather than having all of this bloodshed, why don't you send a representative and we will send a representative and whoever wins that fight, well, not only wins the fight for himself, but he wins the fight for his nation. And so the Philistines sent Goliath and Israel sent David. Mono, mono, winner take all. Another way to illustrate this is this afternoon, there are going to be many NFL football games played. When the Game is about to begin. There will be a representative from each team that will go to the middle of the field. They're called team captains. The question is asked, who's going to get the ball first? That is decided by a coin flip. One person represents his entire team. If he calls heads and the coin comes up tails, his teammate from the sideline cannot jump in and say, hey, wait a minute, I want to do over. I never would have called heads. I always called tails. Let me give it a try. No, it is one and done. One player represents his entire team. Well, this was sort of the way it was in the case with Adam, but it's a little different because with Adam, it wasn't a 50-50 coin toss. Adam knew that it was heads and he defiantly called tails. His choice negatively infected the entire team, and I'm here today, sadly, to tell you we are all on Team Adam. Now, some people will protest, and they will argue and say, well, that's not fair, because I never agreed to have Adam as my representative. I would rather represent myself. How is it fair that one guy gets to decide for all humanity? I want a do-over. No, no you don't because consider that the best representative that we ever could have hired to call the coin toss for us was Adam. He was the only perfect man who ever lived. He did not have a sin nature. He was created perfect. Anybody who would have been chosen to represent us would have sinned sooner than Adam did. Furthermore, You are perfectly content with Adam as your representative, and you prove that every time you willfully commit a sin. Every time you sin, you applaud Adam's decision to eat the fruit. You did the right thing, Adam, and I'm confirming that you did the right thing because I, too, am going to defy this God and transgress the law he has given me. You see, you are okay with one man standing as a representative for a larger group, particularly if you are a Christian, if you believe the gospel, because what is the gospel other than one man going to bat for the rest of us? One man on Mount Calvary, one man who lived perfectly and died in place of God's elect. By faith, you can accept that reality. so it's not consistent to say, I will accept the federal headship of Christ, but I do not want it from Adam. It's all or nothing at all. And quite frankly, my opinion nor yours doesn't matter. That's the way that God set it up. And as a result of Adam's sin, all of his children are born with a sin nature. We're all born spiritually dead. Your little baby that comes out is not born with a blank slate. That baby comes out as a sinner. Psalm 58, three: The wicked are estranged from the womb. They come forth as soon as they are born speaking lies. We... <clears throat> Cannot say that we have not been impacted and corrupted by the sin of Adam. Adam, you are responsible. Through one man, sin entered the world. Let's look at it mathematically. What is the mathematical probability that of all the human beings who have ever lived, and I'm talking about all of them, which is somewhere between 110 billion and 120 billion. But let's, for the sake of argument, let's be conservative and let's just round it down and say that the total population of the world all time is about 100 billion. Let's do the math. What are the chances that every single one of those people would be a sinner? and would have a sin nature. Uh, in other words, what are the chances? Here you, 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 you've got, you have got 100 billion chances. But yet, Romans 3.23, all have sinned. Could you not just get me one through who did not? What are the chances? Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not One. You would think with 100 billion chances there would be one of Adam's offspring who wasn't a sinner. Add to that all of the advances which we have made in medicine and genetic engineering and education and child development and sociology, all of that for all of these years. I'm not asking for two. Just give me one. Everything that parents have done to create environments which would be safe and which would be environments where their, their children would flourish in that which is good. Can we can, cannot come up with one single person who is sinless? Wow, we can't do it. Let's talk about monasteries for a second. Why is it that there's all kinds of perversion that has happened and does happen in monasteries. Because the whole idea is you remove someone from the world and then they will be safe, they will be sequestered, and there will not be the influences of sin. I think monasteries would be places which would be perfectly safe and there would be no sin as long as there were no people there. But as soon as you put someone there enter perversion, and then you tell that person that it is not right for them to get married, which, according to 1 Timothy 4, is a demonic doctrine. You put them there, and you put them all together. What you're going to have is perversion. You cannot escape the effects of sin. We can't come up with one single sinless person. Now, not all people are equally bad, but we are all totally depraved. Total depravity does not mean that we are as bad as we possibly can be. Total depravity does not mean that there is no good in us, for there is. But total depravity means that sin has infected the totality of our being, our minds, our wills, Our emotions, our decisions, our actions, our affections. Sin is like grape juice on a white carpet. It permeates all of it. All have sinned. Why? Because all are sinners. Why? Because of Adam. Adam, you are responsible. All 100 billion of your children are sinners. And you, Adam, You are the one that did this to us. And not only are we sinners by nature. In other words, not only are we born with a gravitational pull and a propensity toward breaking the laws of God, but we also do it by choice. Not only do we want to do it, but we actually do it. We all by choice sin. You see, you don't become a sinner when you sin. You sinned because you were born a sinner. When did I become a sinner? Well, there are two correct answers. One would be to say you became a sinner in the womb at conception. Psalm 58, 51 verse 5. In sin, my mother conceived me. It doesn't mean that her act of getting together with your father was sinful. It means that at the point of conception, boom, you became a sinner. And the second correct answer would be to say in the Garden of Eden you became a sinner because when Adam sinned, you sinned. Do you remember the story of Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14? The writer of Hebrews cites that story and says that Levi also paid tithes to Melchizedek. In Adam, in the Garden of Eden, When he committed that sin, you also committed that sin. You were with him. You are in Adam as your representative. And sin, this is where we maybe need to get really practical, sin is responsible for all of the sadness and all of the misery in the world. Every bit of it. it. It traces its roots back to sin. Whether it is war, or lying, or adultery, or murder, or gossip, or homosexuality, or decay, or depression, or stealing, or pride, or cursing, or divorce, or anything, every bit of it all traces its roots back to sin. 100% of it was introduced to the human race by Adam. Adam, you are responsible. Now, let's be clear. Even though Adam is responsible for introducing sin to all mankind, at the same time, we are responsible for our own actions. But Romans chapter 5 verse 12 speaks to the origin of sin on the planet. And if that's all that he did, well then that would be horrible. But wait, there's more. Not only is Adam responsible for sin, but for death as well. Think of it this way. Adam came to the party. He brought a friend by the name of sin, and sin was sick with a contagious disease, and sin coughed all night, and sin brought with it death. Adam brought sin, and sin brought death. You can't have sin without death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Let's just talk about physical death for a moment. It is a certainty. Why do people die? Every person dies for the same reason, and that is sin. It might be your own sin. You might commit suicide. It might be the sin of someone else. Someone gets drunk, and they drive their car, and they kill you. Or it just might be the fact that you live in a sin-cursed planet where things get old, they decay, they deteriorate, and they die. But sin is the cause of all physical death. And sin is the cause of all spiritual and eternal death as well. Let's compare tow trucks and undertakers. Both professions operate under the premise that something is going to go wrong. But there is a difference. If you run a towing company, you assume that something is going to go wrong, that cars are going to break down, and usually they do. When they do, you tow them and you make money. But you're working under the premise that something will go wrong. However, as unlikely as it is, it is theoretically possible that no car will ever break down. It is unlikely, but it's theoretically possible. Undertakers, on the other hand, are in a profession where with absolute certainty, they are going to get business. You have 100%, a 100% guarantee that your services will be required. Why? Hebrews nine twenty it is appointed unto men once to die. Again, I would say, you've got 100 billion shots. Can you just give me one person that's not going to die. Just give me one. You can't because we are all going to die. You are going to die. That is certain. Romans 5, 12 says, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now that last phrase, because all sinned, is difficult. I'm not really sure I know what it means. There are a couple of possibilities. It could mean we die because Adam made us sinners and our own sin killed us or was in the process of bringing death to us individually, the soul that sins shall surely die, or it perhaps can mean that we die because we were in Adam and that is the sin which he committed ensures our death. Uh, and that's also a possibility, First Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam all die. Now, I'm not sure which one it is. Both are theologically correct. But at the end of the day, it doesn't actually make any difference whatsoever because the end result in both cases is death. The first part, however, is really easy to understand, and that is that death spread to all men. Physical, spiritual, and if not corrected or remedied, eternal death. Death. You are going to die. That is a certainty. You see, when there is a plane crash or a terrorist attack, we are sad because people have died. And we should be sad. It is right to be sad. However, please consider that in a plane crash, nobody in that plane died who wasn't going to die eventually anyway. They simply died sooner than everyone expected, but they were going to die. Do you know that 100% of the passengers on the Titanic died? Many of them died on April 15th, 1912. Some of them, in fact, one of them lived all the way up until the year 2009. But you know what? Every single one of them is dead right now and you will die as well. And Adam is responsible. Adam, you are responsible I I, I plan to continue to be a pastor. I don't think that I will ever be an undertaker. But if I ever do open a business where I am an undertaker, in the lobby of my establishment, I am going to have a picture of Adam because he's the one who helped start this business and he is the one, through his disobedience, which assures that the business will always have customers. Adam, you are responsible you see we look at all of the misery and all of the suffering in the world and and we 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 shake our heads and we say why i I remember one time my grandson rowan did something that he wasn't supposed to do and i wanted him to think about what he was doing and so i said rowan why do you why did you do that he said i don't know I said, no, Rowan, let, let's just think about it. I, you know, I told you not to do this and you did it. Why did you do it? He said, I don't know. And what I wanted him to do was to think through, well, here's what I was thinking and here are the thoughts that came into my mind. I said, third time, Rowan, why did you do this? And he said, because I'm a wicked sinner. That's why. 100% of it can be traced back to Adam. I remember when I was training Alec Millen to be a minister over 25 years ago. Alec was working here for the summer. He was getting ready to go off to seminary. And so we went to make a hospital visit to a man who had visited our church, a man who was not a believer, a man who was a drunk, a man who was being taken into the hospital to die. A man who, when he got to the hospital, was begging the nurse to get him a beer. And as he was in his bed, unconscious, there was some sort of a tube. I can see it. There was some sort of a tube in his mouth, and and there was this brown bile that was coming out of his mouth, and it was it was it was a gruesome sight, and it was disgusting. And I turned to to Alec and I said, Alec there is a lesson here and that is this. And that is that God was not fooling around and He was not joking when He said, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you shall surely die. And you know, there is no philosophy, there is no worldview, there is no religion which explains why people behave the way they do and why there is so much pain and agony in the world. The only Body of literature, which explains why it happens, is the Bible. Adam brings sin, and sin brings death. Let me give you a personal observation from just my own life. I was a teenager in the 1970s, and it was very clear as I looked at my fellow teenagers that kids would exclude and they would make fun of unpopular kids And in pride, they would form cliques, and there were the haves and the have-nots. Fade in, fade out, in 1998, we form Camp Impact, our youth camp in the summer. Lo and behold, over that 20-year period, teenagers did not change at all. Clothing styles changed, but the sinful attitudes and actions were identical 20 years later. Camp Impact has been around for 25 years, and guess what? The same selfish sins of teenagers who have pride and form cliques and make fun of those who are not as cool as they are still exist 25 years into our camp. And you know what? If Jesus doesn't return in the next 10,000 years, teenagers will still form cliques and be unloving to the less popular kids. Why? Because the heart of man never changes. But it is not just the teenager. It is the little toddler who pitches a fit. It is the fourth grader who cheats on the test. It is the man who cheats his client. It is the young adult who fornicates. It is the middle-aged woman who gossips. Or it is the senior adult in the nursing home who is cranky and cruel. It's all the result of our sinful hearts which we have inherited from Adam. Something goes wrong. Something goes wrong, and we ask, why did that happen? The answer is always Adam. Adam, you are responsible. Now, perhaps you're not a Christian, and you do not agree with the Bible or my assessment of the origin of bad, but here's one thing that you cannot disagree with, and that is that people are bad. Just watch the news and you will see that people are bad and that there is a lot of suffering in the world and that everyone does die. Biblical Christianity is the only religion in the world. It's the only worldview which explains where it comes from and why things are the way they are. Adam, you are responsible. Now it's time for, we are in between points three and four for a commercial break. That is verses 13 and 14. They are not easy to understand. They are parenthetical. They address the impact of sin after the fall of Adam leading up to the giving of the law of Moses. Fairly tough to interpret. Here's my guess. When to read and work through verses 13 and 14 before we get into point number four. It reads like this. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Well, duh, yes, of course, sin was. We, we know that, it's obvious. Uh, we see it in the book of Genesis, in the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, the sins of Joseph selling uh, Joseph's brother selling him into slavery. Sin was all over the place in the book of Genesis before the law came. Countless sins, too many to, to mention. From Adam to Moses. And then in verse 13, what Paul does, pay close attention, is he raises a hypothetical objection. This is not Paul's personal belief. This is a hypothetical objection concerning imputed sin. And he says, almost as if to say, but you will say to me, sin is not counted where there is no law. In other words... You're saying that sin was in the world from Adam to Moses. Well, that can't be because if there is no law, then there is no breaking of the law. Uh, Therefore, sin couldn't be in the world prior to Moses. Then he comes in with verse 14, and he answers that objection with the word yet or nevertheless, and it reads as follows. Yet or nevertheless... We do know that sin was in the world. Why? Because death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. In other words, with 100% certainty, we know that sin was in the world. And the reason that we know that sin was in the world is because people kept dying. That is how we know. Uh, One, I think one of my favorite verses in all the Bible is Genesis 5.27, speaking of Methuselah, who lived to be 969. What does it say about him? And he died. Everyone died. And since everyone died, we know, therefore, that sin was in the world. There's not going to be any death without sin. Had there not been sin, there would have been no death. But what did death do? Well, like a king, death reigned. It got everyone. You didn't have to sin like Adam. In other words, you didn't have to be a transgressor with a specific rule. You still knew the difference between right and wrong, and you chose to do wrong. That is the essence of sin. So Adam had more information, but Paul says you didn't have to sin the same way he did in order to experience death. You don't have to be a transgressor in order to be a sinner. Adam's sin was like the sin of Israel in that, in both cases, the rules were clearly spelled out. In both cases, Paul says that they were transgressors. Paul says, even if the rules for the people in the book of Genesis were not specifically spelled out, we do know that they sinned and the way that we know that they sinned. Here's the proof, and that is that they died. I think that is what Paul is saying in verses 13 and 14. So the commercial break is over, which brings us to our final point, and that is, Adam, you are a type of Christ. Notice what it says at the end of verse 14. Speaking of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, and the one who was to come is Christ. In what sense are these two men similar? Well, we will talk much more about this in the remainder of the chapter, but I do want to speak for just a moment about how Adam is a type of Christ. How is that true? Well, Adam was perfect, and so was Christ. Adam was given a law that is a rule. Christ was given the law that is the law of Moses. Adam was in a beautiful garden. By contrast, Christ was in the wilderness. Adam could eat anything that he wanted to eat except from the one tree. But Christ didn't eat anything. He was fasting. Adam failed. Christ passed. Adam disobeyed, and through his disobedience, others were impacted unto death. Christ obeyed, and it impacted others unto life. Adam was the federal head of all sinners. Christ is the federal head of all who will inherit eternal life. Paul sums it up best in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 47 through 49. Turn to that passage or simply listen to these verses. What does it say? The first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. He was created out of dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. That is, you and me. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In other words... We who are in Christ will live eternally. Let me sum it up. One man stood as our representative, and he failed. And his failure brought us sin, and his failure brought us death. His failure explains every sorrow that the world has ever known or ever will know. Another man hangs on a cross as our representative, He passed God's test. God said of him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he takes our sin, and as our representative, he pays for our sin. The gospel is of first importance. This is sin which he himself resisted. This is a law which he completely and perfectly fulfilled. And he not only dies, but he defeats death by coming back to life on the third day. Adam goes into a grave, and lo and behold, he's still there. Jesus goes into a grave, and lo and behold, he is alive, alive forevermore. And every joy and every blessing, including spiritual life and the joy of being saved and living life in the local church, and eternal life with God forever in heaven, is yours through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. So, as you walked in here today, you were in one of two categories. You are either in Christ, or you are in Adam. My loving counsel to you today is to put your trust in the one who can give you life, and that is Jesus, rather than to remain in a state of death, which will lead to eternal death. You see, God so loved the world The world that Adam destroyed. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Do you remember when I told you at the beginning that God loves you? Well, he still loves you. And he showed that in the giving of his son. All right. 131 down and 302 to go, which means what? It means that we're getting there. Let's pray. Lord, why? Why would you look down on mercy upon the sons and daughters of Adam, we who are sinners and give your perfect son for us? This, Lord, we will never understand. But, Lord, this we believe in faith. And, Lord, in this we rejoice. Lord, I pray for someone who might have walked into this church today content with the fact that they are in a body of death and they are headed toward eternal death. I pray, dear Lord, that by your Spirit, that there would be a great exchange today. Lord, that they would give up their death in favor of the Son of God who is life. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.